You're listening to a message delivered at First Family Church from the series, The Kings and the King, Expectation in the Books of the Kings. For more information and messages, visit our website at firstfamily.church. Well, as we dig into 2 Kings again this week, we've only got a few weeks left in these books. Um, I want to ask you to watch this and tell me the first time, well, not tell me, but just try to remember the first time you saw it. All right, here's what this simple silent video will show. Remember the first time you saw this? And maybe some of you have never seen one live and in person. They used to be popular to set these on desks. Like, you know, I guess when people got bored, they would utilize Newton's cradle. That's kind of what it's called, by the way. I didn't know that either. Tanner found it online. And um, I asked him to find this because this is kind of like what we're doing in 2 Kings and 1 Kings. You know that? We're going from the north boink, to the south, boink, to the north. It's like back and forth in these chapters, isn't it? Northern kingdom, southern kingdom, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. So I think about this picture a lot as I'm reading these texts because we're bouncing back and forth and we're learning about the kings that reigned in Israel's history and we're learning about God and about them and application and what does it say about us? And we're seeing that really all of these guys don't live to the standard of of David, their best king, and even he falls short. And so it's all pointing to Christ, the ultimate king. We're learning along the way applications for us. I just kind of wanted you to see that because it's kind of uh, going to show us today what we're doing, in fact. We're going to kind of see a king in the north, and then we're going to bounce over and see a king in the south. And we're going to see these two kings today in all of their success, all right? Which should spark a thought in your mind because we haven't always seen a lot of success in these dark times in Israel, both, both kingdoms in this one nation are spiraling downward. There have been very few bright spots. In fact, in the north, there's not a single good king. In the south, Judah, there's a few more. But all in all, it's just kind of heading downward. So today, as we look at two kings who actually were very successful, I want us to answer this question. Does their success or their prosperity, does that mean they were godly kings? Now, the answer to the question I think you know is what? No. So we're not going to spend X amount of time just with a simple answer. I think like last week, we're going to dive into the why of the answer. What's kind of behind it and try to gain some insight into this issue of prosperity, success, and how does that equate, excuse me, how does that relate to godliness? What's God looking for and how does it all work together? We're going to talk about that today by looking at two kings, one in the north and one in the south. So your Bibles are open by now to 2 Kings chapter 14, right? I want us to see the first king. His name is Jeroboam. We're going to read about him in verses 23 to about 27 of 2 Kings chapter 14. Now, you may recall that there is another Jeroboam previously mentioned. He's known as Jeroboam the first, so this would be Jeroboam the what? Second. Now, the Bible doesn't necessarily call them that. That's a title we give them to help distinguish the two. This Jeroboam, the Bible says in first, excuse me, 2 Kings 14, 23, he began to reign in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah. That's when Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. Notice that both uh, 
of the current kings, they had a, a father named Joash. You recall last week there was a Joash in the south and a Joash in the north, also called Jehoiash. So they had sons. We're now looking at the son of Joash in the north. His name is Jeroboam, and he reigns in Samaria 41 years. Now here's his epitaph. Here's his tombstone marker, we'll call it. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Just a simple sentence. Not a good memory, is it? In fact, this is the common theme for all northern kings. It says, He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. There's Jeroboam the first. Which he made Israel to sin. Now, at the end of 24, you find a, a, a stark change in how they talk about Jeroboam. Look at your Bibles with me. It's like a hard right turn. Watch this. He restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath of Fear. So no sooner does they, do they say about Jeroboam, he did evil, than they talk about his success. He expanded the territory. He, he did a great job to help Israel really be a, a known factor again. And this, of course, was because of God, as the word says here. And here's why God did this. Look at verse 26. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, and there was none left, bond or free, there was none to help in Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them. He gave them, you might call it a reprieve. He showed kindness and compassion. How? Look at the ordained providential means by which God showed his kindness to Israel, the northern kingdom. By the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Isn't that interesting? He actually gave this ungodly king an immense amount of success to the degree that he expanded Israel's borders. So militarily, politically, economically, the northern kingdom was in probably a better day than it had been. So what does that say to us? Well, was Jeroboam actually a righteous king? Was he a good guy? We just maybe missed something? No. Here's something we can learn from this, quite simple and to the point. That success is no indicator of spirituality. Now, godliness is, right? That lets us know the right things are happening on the inside. But actually, what's on the outside doesn't really tell us a lot, like success, financial success, prosperity, material wealth, physical safety. Those things don't tell us that someone's really okay on the inside. They don't. Now, let's pause there and talk about this. Because I hope your mind's turning like, hmm, I thought, Todd, that in Deuteronomy, God said that if they did right, He would bless them. And if they did bad, He would curse them. Isn't that called the blessings and the cursings? So, so how can you say then that suddenly success is no indicator? It seems like God was actually saying if they would follow him, they would be successful. It's a great point you're making. Here's what's happening. In the bigger picture that is occurring in their covenant community. In fact, that's why they're on a headlong journey towards captivity. You know that, right? Because God promised that he would judge their sin. But in the smaller pictures, what really reigns, watch this is really God's acts of compassion and kindness, not Jeroboam's spirituality. You see, this is the reason they experience success. I should say he experiences success here. It's because God is gracious and compassionate. 
He says that even in the verse. He says that God saw that they were in a bitter time, and so he saved them. But he did this through Jeroboam. So it doesn't tell us a lot about Jeroboam's spirituality, but it tells us a whole lot about God's compassion. Now let's extrapolate that a bit, and I want you to think with me about how that relates to success, financial prosperity, material wealth. Generally speaking, I would say to you my opinion on this, and I'm trying to make sure I don't share more than my opinion until the Bible lets me, okay? My opinion is that typically, generally speaking, success is an act of God's compassion and an act of of His principles working in life, whether you're just or unjust. God has set up things to work, such as hard work often equals good success. Do you know that? And that can be experienced by someone who's an unbeliever or a believer, right? In fact, I think it's in Luke where it's reported that Christ says the the rain falls on the just and the unjust, correct? So there's a bit of common grace that goes into this idea of success. That both unbelievers and believers can experience it. Principles are set up by God in the universe and they operate. And so often as people work hard or uh, create, uh, try to achieve, that's honored by the principles God set up. And so you'll find that some people succeed and are successful. They're financially well off. They're materially blessed. And they have no time for God at all. Does that make sense, guys? So I'm just kind of thinking through. I think a lot of times success is just kind of the result of God's common grace and general principles that He has set up. And they can be experienced by both the just and the unjust. So it's really not an indicator of spirituality. And we find this to be true, especially when you look at the prosperity gospel proponents who want to say that material wealth is the sign that God's blessing you. The problem is that's just not in the Bible. (laughs) Do you know that? I mean, there's no other way to, to say this nicely. That's simply not in the Bible. In fact, the Bible speaks of the opposite that many people were extremely right with God and following Him and were experiencing abject poverty, the plundering of their houses, Hebrews says, uh, severe persecution. And so the other ditch is this, that we think that poverty is the gospel. You see, we've been, not we, but I think the culture can be quick to attack prosperity gospel. But I think we should be as quick to notice that the poverty gospel is also something that's not healthy. Neither the poverty gospel or the prosperity gospel should be our focus because the problem is both of those focus then on the actual idea of wealth. But see, whether you have things or don't have things, that's not the issue. In fact, the Bible says this, that money's not the root of all evil. What is the root of all evil? The love of money. And here we get to the heart of what's happening. Whether you have a lot or whether you don't have a lot and you have little, what you have and the amount of it is not really the issue. It's how you treat it. (laughs) This is why the real issue in this is stewardship. And if you were to ask me, What is one mark of a godly person, Todd? I would say to you, stewardship is one of the marks of a godly person, not success. You tracking with me now? So whether you're experiencing, for who knows what reason, a season of poverty, things are tight, 
Maybe you lost your job. Maybe you had unexpected bills. Maybe a health crisis. It could be a number of things. And you're like, man, this is, this is a struggle. That doesn't indicate that you're not right with God. The question is, in this moment, how will you manage the little bit that God's allowed you to have and entrusted you with, right? That says a lot about your spirituality. The same thing is true for those that have a lot. For whatever reason, they're experiencing success financially. But how you treat those and steward those and manage those says a lot more about you than the fact that you have them. If you're with me, let me hear your head. <laughs> you're with me? Yeah. So I think this is a very important point to understand from Jeroboam's life. The tendency may be to say, wow, look at how good he did. Look at how successful he was. But really, it wasn't due to his success. Those, that wasn't connected to his spirituality. The fruit is God, just in compassion and in graciousness, used Jeroboam, even in his wickedness, to show favor to his people and give Jeroboam success. It's not an indication of spirituality. Now, I've opened up a Pandora's box here, I know. Prosperity gospel, poverty gospel, wealth, poverty. We have a thousand thoughts on those, and I don't have the time to, to expand all of that, and nor could I even just from a skill level. That's beyond a lot of my abilities. I would urge you to read a, an excerpt from a book that, I, that I've uh, benefited from. The article I put on our Facebook page, but it addresses both of these kind of extremes, both of these ditches, and really presents a, in this article kind of a summation of what the book actually calls, uh, calls us to. And I want to encourage you, just check out our Facebook page. You'll see the link there to the article. I think it'll really help you. Try to balance, you know, uh, driving your car in the, in the right lane and not seeing success as the goal. Because suddenly folks will know that, that God's blessed me. Not seeing a, a raise or promotion as the ultimate aim or thinking that, well, I'm, I'm in a tough way. What did I do wrong? I think those aren't the questions to ask. The real question is, in whatever season God has sovereignly placed me, am I being a faithful manager of that? And how's the inside of that? How's the inside of my life in this time? The article will help you with that. It really will. It's really helped me. I think it'll help you as we continue to think about this idea of, of success and does it equate to godliness? We know it doesn't, but why then do all of us seem to want to be successful so badly, right? Why do we attach so much of our worth to being successful? It walks you through some of this. So this is what Jeroboam shows us. First of all, that success is no indicator of spirituality. That isn't what should be in the bullseye. What should be is godliness. And one of the traits of godly people is that they steward well, which is an attitude about what you have regardless of how much or little it is. You with me? Okay, it's first lesson from the king in the north. That's the ball on this side going click, right? So it now goes to this side. Let's look at the south. What do we learn from this king in the south? His name is Azariah in chapter 15 of 2 Kings. He's also known as Uzziah. I'm going to use the name Uzziah to talk through the, the narrative here, okay? Because he's called Uzziah in 2 Chronicles and Isaiah 6. I think it's the more common name. Furthermore, it's the one on your handy-dandy simplified chart we gave you the last two weeks, right? We'll go with that name. Uh, but here's what it says about Uzziah or Azariah. That in the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, so the one who saw Israel's territory expand, who really saw success because it was God's compassionate act, in spite of his evilness, 
Yeah, in his 27th year, Azariah, the son of Amaziah, king of Judah, began to reign. And he was 16 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. Wow, that's amazing. It's a long reign, isn't it? It says in verse 3, look at his epitaph. Look at his grave marker here, so to speak. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. That's a good thing. Praise God for Uzziah, also known as Azariah. However, look at verse 4. And this word is, is consistently through the kings. It's either nevertheless or it's but or it's however. It's always this tag on all the kings, usually except for David. Like, they did pretty well except for... There's always this tag about how they just fell short. Not just of God's standard, but even fell short of the kingly standard, which was set by David. It says here, Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and made offerings in the high places. So here's this, this culture in Judah of, of a king that's doing right, and yet they're kind of oblivious. Are you following me, church? They're kind of ignoring Blatant, obvious sin all around. In these places where they would go and worship idols and have pagan sexual practices to them. He didn't deal with those. Verse 5 actually is probably several decades after verse 4. In this narrative, we don't know the amount of time exactly, but just to keep in mind, what you're about to read now is decades away from verse 4. Okay? Here's verse 5. And the Lord touched the king so that he was a leper to the day of his death, and he lived in a separate house. Now, that's, an, that's important information. Wouldn't you agree? But don't you love the way the writer of Kings kind of makes it an afterthought? It's like, here's Uzziah slash Azariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And, and by the way, at the end, uh, he got leprosy and moved in a house and wasn't king. It's like, there's a story there somewhere. Can we hear the rest of the story, please? Well, it's told in 2 Chronicles 26. So turn right just for a few pages. I want you to see why he was struck with leprosy. Because here's where I think the real lesson for us is. It's between verses 4 and 5. What happened between verse 4 when he was doing right and verse 5 when he was struck with leprosy? What's going on? 2 Chronicles 26 lays it out for us. You see in verse 1 he's talking about the same king. 16 years old when he reigned. Here he's called Uzziah. It says in verse 6 that he went out and made war against the Philistines and broke through the wall of Gath and the wall of Jabna and the wall of Ashdod. And he built cities. Did you catch that? This is no lightweight king, people. I mean, he's constructing cities that people live in and have jobs and are involved in agriculture and commerce. And he's doing that in places that were previously owned by the Philistines that had come into Israel and taken their places. I mean, this guy is uh, making Jerusalem great again. That's the kind of guy he is, okay? It's just amazing. As you read all these verses from about 6 to about the end of verse 15, he builds towers in the wilderness. He cuts out cisterns. Um, he gathers a military. He strengthens them. He makes um, soldiers and he trains people. He makes equipment. Verse 15 says that his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. I mean, this guy was successful, wasn't he? So in the north and the south, you've got these two really successful kings. But look what success did to Uzziah. We know that success to Jeroboam was not an indication of anything about him. So what happened with Uzziah and success? 
prosperity, wealth. Look what happened. Verse 16. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. And by the way, from a literary point of view, that's a beautiful verse. You know why? Because I think the author here, whoever it may be of 2 Kings, it mirrors what Solomon, the last king of the United Kingdom, said in his Proverbs, that pride goes before a fall, a haughty spirit before destruction. Here, hundreds of years later, is the living out of that. Uzziah is proud of all that he thinks he's done. He becomes so proud that he walks into the temple and takes over the role of the priest, offering incense on an altar, just arrogantly involved in things that weren't his role. He wasn't the prophet, he wasn't the priest, he was the king. But he's now trampling in the territory that doesn't belong to him. Other priests come in and say, Uzziah, this is a bad move. You don't belong here. This is not your role. He just uh, defies them, refuses to listen to them. At that moment, God strikes him with leprosy on his forehead. The priests see it, realize God is, quote-unquote, touching him. Is the word used in the text, isn't it? They move him out of the king's palace because he was a leper. and It's, a kind of an, it's known as an infectious, contacting kind of disease. They move him to a separate house, kind of a retirement home, but it's because he's got leprosy. And apparently, based on 2 Chronicles 26, he reigns with his son Jotham for a while until finally he dies. And the Bible's clear that he has this leprosy until the day of his death. Why did he get leprosy? Why did God strike him with leprosy? Because he took credit for all of his success. He was thinking that he had done the work. In other words, watch this. His success actually sabotaged him. He actually believed everything he was seeing. He was relying on the externals and thinking that was what was true and avoiding dealing with the internals, which was the pride that was growing in his heart. So let's learn something else. Here's lesson two. Success can sabotage you. In what ways and how? Well, it makes things look so good on the outside that we start thinking we're, what's this word, untouchable. That nothing can get to us. That we're actually secure because of what's on the outside. When the truth is, we're at far greater risk than we realize. Listen, church, please, with both ears wide open, hear me well, hear me clearly. I won't mince words here. You're at great risk if the inside of your life is crumbling. If you look in the mirror and every morning you're thinking, I got to deal with that. I got to have that conversation. I've got to forgive that situation. I've got to deal with that incident. I've got to make that right. You can, if you, whatever the conversation is, if you're looking in the mirror and it goes right here to the inside and you're like, yeah, I've got to deal with that, that pornography, that pride, that bitterness, that marriage. I've been sleeping in the basement too long. I'm in the, I mean, you, you can name, name the problem, but if you look in the mirror and your first thought is, I've got to deal with this, and you never do, it doesn't matter what your job is, what your address is, what you drive, where you live, you are at greater risk than you realize. 
Because the very thing that you think is going to save you will actually sabotage you. It's blinding you to the real issue, which is always internal, not external. When I read through this a few weeks ago and just began to meditate on this and kind of digest it, I usually do that for a while before I put any pen to paper. At some point, you kind of start formulating your thoughts. This, this image came to my mind of a man in the desert. And I think this analogy breaks down in time. So those of you who are very specific and good at this stuff, just give me some room here, okay? But I had this picture of this man in this desert, you know, crawling, trying to find water. And he's getting deeper and deeper into the desert. He doesn't know it. And he thinks he sees water. It's actually a mirage, right? It's an illusion. There's no water there. But he thinks there is, so he crawls further into the desert, thinking it's going to save him, when actually it's going to kill him. I thought, that's how success is. If we start actually believing that what we see on the outside, that these external things are going to be our security and our fortress, and then we keep crawling to them, we're actually crawling deeper into the very hole that's going to kill us. We can't avoid the hard conversations with the person in the mirror. Man, have you ever wondered what Uzziah thought in these 52 years? Like, I don't know how long it took to build the cities, but let's, say, let's just say it was 40. He looks over and he says, man, am I not one great king? At what point does he look in the mirror one morning and think to himself, these aren't good thoughts? At what point does he say to himself, I actually didn't do all this work? On what day does he say to himself, I should really give credit to the folks who, who helped me do this? I mean, when does this happen? I don't know. But at some point, he refuses to deal with the greater issue, and that's what's inside, and he instead relies on everything he sees on the outside. And it actually sabotages him. Here's what would never have sabotaged him. Godliness. Just taking the simple steps of doing the next right thing. Like, for instance, as 2 Kings 15 relates to us, dealing with the high places that still existed, dealing with the fact that people were still offering sacrifices to pagan gods in areas of the kingdom. This should not have been going on. And you know what? I, I tend to think Uzziah thought to himself, well, if I take all those down, if I deal with that, that's going to be really hard. It's going to have a negative effect. I mean, it just seems like that's something that's not going to really showcase what a good king I am. I would rather build something spectacular and glorious. Let's go after this road where we can do large things and we can, you know, it's, it's easily seen. It's, it's, it's uh, something that looks grand. Let's don't attack some of the harder things that no one really sees. And what I believe personally, just to be extremely transparent with you, is that success is actually found in the mundane, hard-to-do, long-period-of-time things that most people won't see. But our culture is way more intrigued with the adrenaline aspect. We want the big and the grand. We want to gain the attention. We want the spectacular, don't we? So, hey, don't deal with what's really hard and really represents what's inside. Let's just build some brand-new cities and towers. Distract our attention from what really needs to happen. And so just as stewardship reflects the godliness 
that really is what counts? In this case, here's what I would say to you. The small steps represent the kind of godliness that God's after. You know, God's not after you making some massively big splash just once in your life, perhaps. Like, <laughs> to chase this grand dream, perhaps, and when the end, everybody's clapping for you. And that may be what we see in our culture sometimes. You know, it's three, two count, bottom of the ninth. You hit the home, like, man, I want, I want that moment, right? I think the kind of godliness that, that this is helping us understand is the kind that, in almost a mundane fashion, you take the small steps to deal with what really matters. Between services, I talked with a young man in our church. He said, Todd, I've done that over the last six weeks, and it's made a big difference in my life. But he said, no one really knows about it. There's a lot of wisdom there, by the way. Uh, he just got baptized several months ago, which, by the way, is one of those steps, too. You know, like, let's just get baptized after conversion, obey the Lord. He said, and I just found myself kind of drifting. He said, but I connected with an older gentleman in our church. I began to meet with him regularly, just me and him. It seemed kind of mundane, seemed kind of regular. It seemed like a discipline. We've kept, we stayed in the Word. He's been discipling me and mentoring me. And he said, some, some days I, I don't want to go. But I know it's the right thing, and it's really helped me deal with what's in here. And so I go. And he said, you know what, Todd? He said, that's been paying off way more than just trying to seek to do something big in a one-time fashion. You know what he's catching on to? He's catching, he's a young man. He's catching on to this. That really the kind of things that move us in our spiritual walk are not spectacular, grand, one-time events. They're the mundane, regular discipline moves that slowly but methodically move us along a pursuit of godliness in times when most people will never know or see you. But you're faithful and disciplined. And then over the long haul, what's produced is a character of godliness that most folks never were watching when it was produced. Can I give you a couple of examples of that? I think uh, community is one of those things. It's easy to kind of show up once a week here and kind of make your appearance. Now, forgive me if I step on your toes here a little bit, okay? Make your appearance and kind of look good, give the right answers. The rest of the week, you're kind of distant from anyone who knows the Lord. You're not really connected at all. There's no really accountability. There's no further discussion. There's, there, there's not really any conversations that, that propel you to think about your godliness. Do you see what I'm saying? I think it's easy to just kind of check in for an hour and a half. And even that's considered a long service by something. Man, a whole hour and a half in church. It's, it's a small fraction of your whole week. And you think that's a lot? But we want to kind of make the, make the appearance, you know, get the look. When really what actually helps us in our growth is that weekly additional, hey, I'm connected to people in a small group circle for an hour and a half as well. You see, you might get a few seconds on that road to say hey to somebody, maybe like this morning to pray together or to hear some prayers, but you don't get a lot of time to interact on that road, do you? You listen to me most of the time. You can laugh there, but if you want to, okay, you can just kind of chuckle at that, right? It's kind of a one-way conversation a lot. In a small group, though, you're going to get a lot more than a one-way conversation. You're going to get some accountability. 
Someone digging into you. Someone saying, how's it going? How's godliness going? I mean, I tell you, that's the small kind of steps that really make a difference. I'm 100% sold that small groups make a massive difference over the long haul. And they could be in any form. You could use a Sunday school format. You could use a small group from like us. You could use home groups. I don't think the method is the point. The point is, when will you invest beyond just a large gathering where you can kind of hide into a smaller group where you can't hide? And when will you finally say, I'm tired of hiding? When will you deal with what's in here and not thinking that just what's out there is going to save the day for you? I think that's true in how we approach community. I think it's also true in giving. You know, I've learned this, that a lot of people say, well, when I finally get a lot of money, I'm going to give. What I've discovered is that if you don't give when you don't have very much, you won't give when you have a lot. Because giving isn't based on amounts. It's based on values and principles. In fact, in the Bible, do you know that most of the stories about giving are about people who gave small gifts? There's a few exceptions in the Old Testament, uh, maybe one of the newer so, where there was large gifts and it made a massive difference, like a celebration. But most of the stories are like the widow's mite story, where this one lady, she was a widow, gave what was amounting to about a nickel in our economy. It's called two mites. A nickel, but she gave, and Jesus commented on it like this. He said, She gave more than all the Pharisees gave combined. And I guarantee you they gave large amounts because people were watching. Their reputation was at stake. They had to impress them. See, they loved the spectacular and the grand. She knew that it was the small, mundane, regular things that mattered. And Christ said, man, she gave all she had in just giving a nickel. I'm convinced that as we learn to give, even when we have very little, if we just give a portion of that to God, then that begins to be a habit and a, and a lifestyle of generosity so that if and when we do have more, we're able to give that as well. So you say, Todd, what's one of these small steps that seems like it's mundane but it's powerful? Just giving. When you're young, just start giving regularly, faithfully. It may be a very little amount, but God's not looking at amounts. Did you know that? God looks at the heart. In fact, I heard one man say one time, God doesn't see what you give, he sees what you have left over. <laughs> that's really true isn't it that's why we encourage sacrificial giving and can I just encourage you how are you doing in community how are you doing in giving those are just samples of, of obedience and, and small steps to take in these areas where we can begin to say this is really how God moves me to godliness it's not by trying to do something grand on the outside and depend on all these externals that actually in the end will probably sabotage you What really counts is addressing what's inside. Generosity, obedience, community, authenticity. And having that talk with the man or the woman in the mirror and addressing those things so that you can begin to take the small steps of obedience that in the end actually prove to be beneficial because you're becoming godly, not just successful. One's an external, one's an internal. In fact, we'll read this at the end of the service, but let me just give you a little heads up. If you only focus on the externals, if you just say, well, I've got to be successful, I've just got to look right, I've got to make sure folks are impressed and have an appearance, that does have a little bit of value. Did you know that? A little bit. 
I'm not sure what it is, but the Bible says this. The Bible says that, that physical exercise and those kinds of things, there's a little value in that. But then he says this, Paul to Timothy says, but godliness has value to all things. And then he makes this incredible statement, not only in this life, but in the life to come. So if you've got to make a deal, give me success or godliness. Take godliness every time. It's valuable not only now, it's valuable later. That's what we should be aiming for. That's the bullseye of the target. So these two kings that we've kind of bounced back and forth in, they show us some things about financial prosperity, physical safety, what we might use the word success to sum up. That first of all, it's not an indicator of spirituality. It's just not. And it can actually sabotage us if we're not careful. What matters most is godliness. So let's kind of sum this up in just a simple truth. I ask you to read this with me, okay? Here's how we're going to say it this morning. That success and prosperity are immaterial. Now, did you catch what we just said? Immaterial. That means it's really not a good or evil thing. But our attitudes towards it may be, how we depend on it may be. The issue of stewardship, that's an issue. But the actual thing, the, the, the job, the money, or the lack of both, that's not really the issue. They don't indicate spirituality, even though they sometimes can sabotage us if we don't deal with what's inside. So I'll understand clearly what we're saying here. That these two things are immaterial. What really matters is godliness. And that's long obedience in the same direction. In other words, that's just taking the small, mundane, simple steps day after day and finding in year 52 that you're not ending up proud because you're strong, but you're ending up humble because God is gracious. So can we read this together? Maybe you've got a picture of it now, you've written it down. Let's read this, can we? Success and prosperity are immaterial. What really matters is godliness. And godliness is long obedience in the same direction. Now I want to close with just a simple application. So I was thinking about this take-home truth. How does it show up in our life and how did it show up in their life? And I began to be uh, oddly uncomfortable with the similarities. In fact, it's uncannily revealing how the things that they dealt with are the things that we deal with. Let me give you an example. When I thought about what was God actually asking for his people in this time? What did he want from them? What were they resisting and pushing back against? Like, What's the core of the matter here? I have boiled it down to three things I think you can take right from the Old Testament text. It take you through each of the kings and show you this is really what's going on. God desired exclusive worship. This began at Mount Sinai, by the way. Of course, with Abraham, actually. But, I mean, at Mount Sinai, it was kind of codified. You shall have no other gods before me. Make no images, no false idols. In other words, I and I only am God, and only I should be worshipped. That's what he asked for. He also asked for covenant com commitment to their community. In other words, they were to be a distinct people with, a, with an awareness and an embracement, so to speak, of, of who they were. They were God's people. A chosen race, a peculiar people, they're called. They were called out from the nations. They were to be distinct. And so because there's this covenant community happening, they, they were to be a light to the nations, which by uh, explicit and implicit inference here, they were going to be different. 
So here you have a people in the midst of other nations shining as a light, belonging to each other in community, and worshiping one God. I could take that very same issue and put it in 21st century. What are our issues? That sometimes we, we don't like the fact that there's one God who demands our worship. We want our idols, don't we? We may not have high places physically in a kingdom. We sure got them in our life. And we like having God when we need Him, but don't ask to be exclusive, God. I'd rather have you as a consultant than a king. And as a result, we often have an odd attitude towards His community. Instead of embracing the fact that we're His people, we're the sheep of His pasture, we have the sense that, well, it's, it's a good benefit, and when it fits my lifestyle, I'll help. It's kind of like an, an add-on, you know. You buy a car, what's the bonus? You can get this, or you don't have to get that if you don't want it. Like the church kind of is an option if you get saved. That's not how the Bible teaches it. There's a covenant community called the church. It's the physical representation of God's people on the earth, the people who worship God alone. And because of that, watch this church, we are culturally distinct. We are a light to the nations as well. God's people have always been called to that. But you know what? In our society, that is becoming increasingly uncomfortable, isn't it? Just like in the days of the kings, they wanted to be like the other nations. Man, I find this so true. We just want to be like the world. We want to be like our culture. And, and this is where I find my greatest, um, how can I say this, sweetheart? I'm looking for some help here, okay? <laughs> I find that I'm most uncomfortable with the modern-day church in this area. And I'm not saying I've got it down pat or that I'm always right. I'm just saying to you that I want to admit this to you. I think the church's attraction is in our distinction. I've said that to you before. I've written about it. I actually believe that. I think the Bible, especially Ephesians chapter 5, speaks to this. That we're to be un, um, unashamedly distinct. And yet, when I look around, sometimes I find pastor friends who are trying to do everything they can to be undistinct. I don't get that. I'm like, why do you want to shed the very jacket God's put on you? I mean, there's certain things about church that we just can't change. We don't get to, like, decide that's not part of church or who we are. It's kind of in our DNA by God. So I think we should just be willing to embrace our distinction. That doesn't mean we're impolite. Listen, church, very carefully. Does it mean we're not welcoming? Does it mean we're unloving? In fact, I'd say to you, it doesn't mean that we're uh, not tolerant. Now, those definitions have been changed, wouldn't, wouldn't you say? They define them differently. But there are ways that we can exhibit Christ-like character and be loving, be welcoming, without sacrificing biblical and godly principles. What I'm saying to you is that while we do that, we can't just give up what the Bible calls us to. It's actually calling us to a distinct lifestyle. And I'll tell you the one area where our distinction will shine the brightest. It's in our sexual ethic. That is the issue in the 21st century. And I personally believe it was the issue in the first century, by the way. You track the scriptures? People want their sex their way. 
And when the people of God speak against that, as kindly as they may speak, as humble as they may be, as loving as they may be, the culture will not hear that well. They're going to protect their assumed right to have their sex their way, and they're going to come at you. They're going to be upset with you. And it's in those moments when we try to suddenly not be the distinct people of God that I get, I'm like, what are we trying to do here? Why can't we just be who God's called us to be in a kind and loving way? In fact, I, I talked to someone this past week who's wondering where they can get some help for some people who are wondering about their identity in the LGBT community here in Ankeny. They said they went to one church and were given a false gospel. And they said, these are my friends. They're not Christian. I am. I'm not sure what to tell them. And I said, tell them First Family will love them and cares about them and will actually share with them the truth and help them see what God says in the right manner. I don't know if they'll ever come. I don't know. They'll show up. But does that make sense, guys? Instead of backing away and saying, well, we'll just call everything good. No, let's just call it what it is. Let's stick to God's word, but let's do that in a kind and loving way because people matter. God loves them and so should we. We love each other. And we're all dealing with some sin of some type. Wouldn't you agree with that? I know I am. I suspect you probably are too. But trying to erase the distinction that comes with being God's people is the worst idea. So I'm just trying to show you some application here. You think about this idea of success, what we're after. Don't put that in the bullseye. Put these three things in the bullseye right here. That what we're after is exclusive worship of the Lord. We want to be His people. We want to belong to His church. Visibly, unashamedly, we want to live as His people. And then on those points you stand there and if that means that you get persecuted and your houses are plundered and you lose your stuff so be it god says if you're persecuted for that reason you're blessed and if for some reason that actually means you you do really well praise god those two are immaterial that's not the goal the goal are these three things and it's always been the goal for god's people worship him alone value the covenant community that we call the church and are part of, and then be willing to just live a distinctly different life for God's glory in kindness and humility and love. When you do that, you are successful. No matter how much or how little you have. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.